here as a visitor this morning. Uh, you've uh, joined us as we're reaching the end of our series in First and Second Corinthians. This is the second to last of the messages, and uh, you've those who have been um, hearing through this book, you've uh, probably picked up that a big emphasis in Second Corinthians is uh, Paul's defence of his ministry and the ministry of the the true apostles over and against. Uh, the super apostles who were coming in and uh, leading them astray. And in the last couple of chapters, uh, he, Paul's been doing a bit of an experiment where he's been saying, let me speak uh, like the super apostles. Uh, the, let me boast in the way that these so-called super apostles boast. And he showed us that it's actually foolishness to do so, to, to boast in ourselves and in our own power. Rather, he says, I would rather boast in my weakness because boasting in weakness aligns us with Christ. That's the true experience of Christ's power in us. Weakness, Paul says, is the foundational basis of his ministry and Therefore, it should be the important criteria in assessing the genuineness of any Christian ministry. Are they strong in their own achievements or are they weak so that the glory of Christ might be magnified through them? So he says, I've been a fool, but now he moves on to talk about the reality Uh, of him and his ministry and his relationship to the Corinthians. Now it's important for us to see uh, there in verse 12 that Paul isn't saying that signs, wonders and mighty works are these signs of a true apostle because if, if he was that would actually contradict all that he's just said when he was boasting in his weaknesses his sufferings, his persecutions, his having to be let down in a basket out of a hole in the wall. He talks about his sufferings for the sake of the gospel, his faithful teaching of the word of God, um, but also for his love for the churches. If there's anything in this verse, verse 12, that is, Uh, this sign of a true apostle it's that phrase utmost patience when Paul first came to Corinth he faced opposition, strong opposition from the Jews and then he had to go to the Gentiles he had to be visited by Jesus in a vision to be told don't fear but then he stayed in Corinth for over a year and a half teaching the newly formed church. Paul was on a God-appointed mission. He had been sent to go out to as many places as possible, to the very ends of the earth, but that didn't stop him from making his home in Corinth for a long period of time. And you can understand why he expresses this this close personal relationship with the Corinthians and his, his grief over their problems. 
for them, for him, they weren't just part of his missionary project. They were family. Corinth was his home. They were his home. He shared with them his very life. Now the the key word though in this verse for understanding what Paul's saying here is that word with. So patience, signs and wonders and mighty works were things that came with the gospel. They accompanied the gospel and the teaching of the word of God. They're not in themselves the gospel. They're not the substance of why the church comes together. They support and they confirm the preaching of the gospel and the the word of God, but they come and go. And when they go, what remains, it's the word of God. We just need to look at the story of the Israelites in the wilderness to see how fickle our hearts can be and how short-term signs and wonders and mighty works are in terms of sustaining our faith. Only days after they came out of Egypt and saw the mighty works of God, they were complaining and talking about going back. Fire and thunder on Mount Sinai didn't stop them making a golden calf to worship. God's faithful provision to them over 40 years didn't make them reluctant to enter into the promised land. If we think of the New Testament, Jesus' countless miracles done before crowds of thousands didn't stop the authorities from wanting to kill him. And it didn't secure crowds of thousands of disciples to stay with him right through to the end. On the day of Pentecost, there were only 120 disciples. So similarly, the miracles that took place at Corinth when Paul came with the Gospel, that didn't stop them from compromising their faith by going to idol temples or listening to these super apostles who'd come in with false teaching and were exploiting them for their money. See, the purpose of a miracle isn't to create or to establish faith, but to point us to the one who is the author and finisher of our faith. He does it by the power of his word. Right through the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets perform signs to point to their authority as prophets and therefore the need to listen to them and to hear the word of God through them. And not all the prophets did supernatural miracles or signs. Think of John the Baptist. He was the the last of the Old Testament prophets. His purpose was to point the way to Jesus, to point people to the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You might expect spectacular miracles in order to accomplish that, but what was the sign that John the Baptist performed? 
the non-supernatural, non-spectacular action of baptising people in the Jordan. That was the sign that pointed to the reality. All of the miracles that we see taking place in the book of Acts, they have one thing in common. We should say two things. They point us to Jesus, but we also see that they're all the sovereign work of God. He does them as he chooses, not as people choose. When the believers were praying after John and Peter were released from prison, they prayed these words, And now, Lord, look upon their threats, the authorities, and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all bonds, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. See, they're not afraid to ask for signs and wonders, but they understand that it's in conjunction with them boldly speaking the word of God. And it's the Lord who stretches out his hand to do them. Now, the Lord sovereignly confirmed their prayer that he'd heard them by shaking the place in which they were praying And he answered their prayer because they began to speak the word of God with boldness. That's in the second part of that passage. So they experienced a miracle, a sign, a wonder, a mighty work. But they didn't go on to expect or to predict that wherever Christians pray, God will shake the building. He may choose to do that, but it's not a guarantee. It happened again in Acts when Paul and Silas were praying and singing in prison in Philippi. But it doesn't become an expectation that whenever Christians are in prison, they just need to pray and sing and God will miraculously set them free. In the early chapters of Acts, we see many people healed. And these healings were used to get people's attention so that they could hear the gospel. But as the the apostles go out and share the gospel to the ends of the earth and miracles continue to happen, nowhere do they promise that if you come to Jesus, you'll be healed or you'll have a miracle. Rather, their message was, come to Jesus and you'll know the forgiveness of your sins and you'll know the Father you'll become a child of God. When he chose to, God gave miracles along the way. So we shouldn't be surprised if he chooses to stretch out his hand among us and to act in signs and wonders and mighty works. But our faith shouldn't be based on that experience, but on the power of his word to save us and to bring us to maturity in Christ. Now, we we don't need to uh, try and distinguish between those three things, signs, what's a sign and how is it different to a wonder and how are they different to a, a mighty work. There we are, verse 12 there. 
These three terms were often used interchangeably by the Jews and they appear together, especially when the Jews were speaking about their deliverance from Egypt. And so they were told, when your son asks you in time to come, what's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. So there, the signs and wonders didn't stand on their own. They pointed to the Lord's great act of salvation. It wasn't the signs and wonders that saved the people. It was the Lord who saved the people. And the signs and wonders surrounding that act made it clear that this wasn't just another group of oppressed people who mustered up the resolve to to rebel against their Oppressors. That's happened countless times through human history. The signs and wonders made it clear that this is the Lord. The Lord coming against the so-called gods of Egypt, showing himself to be the sovereign ruler over all the nations and rescuing his people in keeping with his promise to their ancestor Abraham. Well, Jesus has brought about the new exodus in which people from all nations are being delivered from the dominion of darkness and being brought into the kingdom of the Son. And that's why the same language then is used in the New Testament, but always in the context of the gospel going out and people being saved. So in Acts 5, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together at Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Now what's intriguing here is that no one dared join them, but at the same time, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Now the sign that had just taken place before this was Ananias and Sapphira, two people who dropped dead in church because of their financial dishonesty. Not exactly the kind of miracle that you would look for if you want to attract people to your church. Maybe Peter should have done a course in church marketing strategies to work out how to have a more seeker-friendly gathering But the Lord was still sovereignly working to bring people to himself through the preaching of the gospel. His fatherly and severe discipline of the church, even in those early days, wasn't a hindrance to him still doing his sovereign work. So the Corinthians, and no less us today, we're part of this great exodus out of the land of slavery and into the promised land of 
Jesus' kingdom. We should be welcome, uh, ready to welcome signs and wonders and mighty works along the way. But we can't and we must not try to create them because God, the Holy Spirit, sovereignly works as he chooses. Now, you may be wondering about the relevance of Paul's defence of his ministry. Why go on and on about how he is a true apostle and the, the men with him are true apostles and uh, how the signs of a true apostle were, uh, were given to them. Does it really matter to us whether Paul was accepted by the Corinthians as a true apostle? Does it really matter whether they rejected these so-called super apostles? I said two weeks ago that uh, these chapters can be helpful in a church uh, helping to keep their pastor and elders accountable. But this is more than just an example of church governance or discernment. Because Paul was an apostle not just to those churches that he visited in his day, but also to us today. He still speaks through the letters that have been preserved in the New Testament. And so does Peter, so does James and John and Luke and Matthew and Mark and Jude. Not to mention Timothy, Silas, Barnabas, Sosthenes and the others who were who were named as co-authors of some of the New Testament letters. We need to ask, here at at our end of 2,000 years of Christian history, why should we listen to and trust and believe the words of the New Testament letters? What makes them more authoritative than the countless other Christian documents that were written at the time. Well, being sure of the apostolic authority of Paul and the other apostles should matter to us as much as it mattered to the Corinthians because we need to be sure that we should take these words as seriously as we're told to. I'm not going to go into all the detail about uh, the uh, what can be said about the reliability of the New Testament documents and the, the evidence that we have that the, the Bible we have today is the same as what the early church has had. Um, if anyone wants to explore that further, let, let me know. But I will say that the strongest testimony that we have to the fact that not just the Corinthians but the whole church across the world has recognised the New Testament letters as true and authoritative is the fact, the simple fact, that we have them today. Ancient writing materials were nowhere near as durable as today's. Documents written on papyrus or animal skins that have to be stored very carefully to make them last. And it was normal practice that important documents that needed preserving would be regularly and carefully copied onto new 
parchments as the old ones began to deteriorate. Not to mention making multiple copies of these important documents so that other people could read them. The abundance of ancient New Testament documents that we have today, thanks to archaeologists, is an indication of the hundreds if not thousands times more copies of these documents there would have been in the first century. They tell us that the church, guided by the Holy Spirit, clearly recognised the stamp of Jesus' authority on these particular letters. And there wasn't a conspiracy where the the writings that the church authorities didn't like were all gathered up and burnt or destroyed. It's simply that those writings didn't have this spirit-given mark of authority on them. And so they just weren't copied. They weren't passed on and eventually they disintegrated and they were lost. We can be confident that what Paul says are the signs of a true apostle were witnessed by thousands of Christians across the known world of the time. And we can trust the testimony of this great cloud of witnesses, our brothers and sisters in Christ from 2,000 years ago. One day in the new creation we'll meet them. We'll meet those men and women who carefully copied meticulously these letters. We'll be able to thank them for their faithfulness to the gospel for their diligence in making sure that the word of God was passed on to future generations and to us. Now what we see in verses 19 through to uh, 13 verse 2 is that the aim of all of Paul's boasting in his weakness to establish his true apostolic authority is so that his relationship with them would be restored. That as a church they will continue to grow into maturity in Christ. In the end, authority means nothing if it doesn't achieve that goal. It might, it might achieve a pure, uh, doctrinally correct church containing only people who believe all the right things But that's not a church, that's a cult. The ultimate criterion that Jesus uses when assessing whether a church's lampstand should remain in its place isn't correctness, but love. Truth that doesn't produce love is just dead conformity. See verse 19. All the words that he's been speaking are with the aim of building them up, not commending himself. And we shouldn't gloss too quickly over the last word in that sentence at the end of verse 19, beloved. According to Wikipedia, there's a number of New Testament words that are used to describe God's people. Christians, disciples, brothers and sisters... Saints, believers, followers of the way, friends, 
elect. But what Wikipedia doesn't include in that list is this word, beloved. It's used more than 30 times in the New Testament to describe Christians as groups and as individuals. The other common use of that word is when the Father spoke at Jesus' baptism and said, You are my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So we are the beloved, the beloved, loved by the Father with the same love, not not just in degrees but in quality, the same love with which the Father loves the Son. How might your outlook on life be different if you were to think of yourself not so much as a disciple or a follower of Jesus but as one who is beloved in Christ? How might it shape the way in which we relate to one another if we describe one another in that way? In a previous church we went to, the pastor Uh, whenever he preached, would always open by saying, Beloved, and it was a wonderful thing to hear. See how verses 20 and 21 are the opposite of that. Paul has two things that he's fearful of. Firstly, in verse 20, he's afraid that when they meet together again, they'll look at each other, And they'll say, you're not up to scratch. You're not the way I think you should be. You're not doing the things I think you should do or in the way that I like them to be done. So he's worried that they'll forget this principle of love, of putting one another's needs before our own, of regarding others more highly than ourselves. And when we do that we so easily give in to quarrelling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit and disorder. Christians, just like all sinful human beings, can argue over the most trivial and secondary issues. In 1054, the Pope in Rome and the Patriarch in Constantinople the leader of what we now know as the Eastern Orthodox Church, they excommunicated one another and they brought an official split between Christians, between East and West, that only ended in 1965 when their successors said, we revoke that excommunication. Now, one issue over which they disagreed was an aspect of their understanding of the Holy Spirit So that was an important thing, worthy of debate and maybe even worthy of dividing over. But the other key issues they couldn't agree on were whether the priests should remain unmarried, whether a bishop could perform the confirmation ceremony and whether communion bread should be unleavened or leavened. As a church, we should celebrate our diversity, part of which comes from the fact that we represent all kinds of cultural and church and denominational backgrounds. It's a good thing 
that we each have different preferences and we focus all on different aspects of our faith and we express our worship and our Christian life in different ways. But they're not the reasons to debate and divide. But Paul's second fear is kind of the opposite to that. It's that they won't be willing to debate, they won't be willing to take a stand on issues that do matter. Things that are not just differences of opinion or methodology, but are actual sin. Impurity, sexual immorality and sensuality. Now, we should also not gloss too quickly over these words. We shouldn't think that they're just about uh, personal and private uh, sexual morality. In fact, while all of these three words uh, can be and are used in the context of sexual immorality, only the middle one, the word pornea, is used exclusively in that context. Sexual immorality practiced by a church member isn't a personal private matter because, as we saw back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, sexual sin is not just against our own body, it's also a sin against the body of Christ, of which we're a member. But that first word, impurity, is literally uncleanness. It's the word that Jesus used to describe the Pharisees who were whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. An unclean spirit in the New Testament is another word for a demon. So I think this is a reference to one of the key issues that the Corinthians were facing there was an encouragement by people in the church to be involved in the pagan worship around them, to think that they could mix their faith with pagan idolatry. And then the third word, sensuality, is probably referring to the lifestyle of these super apostles. They were operating in greed and ambition and selfish gain. They were living luxurious lives at the expense of the poorer members, but they were claiming their prosperity as a sign of their great spirituality. So these are the three things that the Corinthian church had to deal with if they were to continue to grow and to mature as a church. But they're not all that different to battles that we face today as the church. There'll always be the pull to compromise the gospel, to water down the faith by introducing non-biblical or even other religious ideas. We know, don't we, that we are facing ongoing pressure to accept and endorse and even celebrate the liberal sexuality of our culture. And there continues to be the, the danger of being drawn in by celebrity preachers and leaders who use their power and their influence to manipulate people for their own personal gain and power. Now in the Old Testament law, 
these three were crimes that were punishable by death in the various ways that they were expressed. In the church, the crimes that had the death penalty in Israel became offences requiring church discipline. And ultimately, excommunication if that person refused to repent. It wasn't a vindictive act of judgment towards the person. It was the loving act of the shepherd to protect the flock. But the Old Testament law also had a fail-safe. Where is it? There. In the law it said there must always be at least two or three witnesses. If you're going to accuse someone of idolatry or sexual immorality or uh, of anything that required the death penalty or any crime, in fact, in Israel, you couldn't just do it on your own. There had to be two or three who could also verify the charge. So while we must be on our guard against these harmful, destructive and divisive things... We must also be careful and prayerful about how we respond, not being hasty to accuse, making sure we have our facts straight and that we're not swayed by our own personal preferences or emotions. And whatever we do and say, we need to do it in love. Just over over a year ago, when we were going through Matthew's Gospel, we looked at some of Jesus' very specific instructions in Matthew 18 on dealing with conflicts between Christians and in the church. What to do if a brother or sister sins against you and what role the church has to play in that. And I'm not going to go into detail. I've just printed out the sermon from that and if you want to dig into it further, feel free to come and get one later. But I'll say one thing that in that teaching, Jesus' emphasis is not on fixing a problem. It's on restoring relationships. True church discipline is always an expression of love. It may not always be viewed by the person facing discipline, but Hebrews 12:11 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later... It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Last week we saw that Jesus' grace is sufficient not just for our personal lives but our corporate lives and our weaknesses. But living by grace doesn't mean that we are soft on his call to be His holy people, set apart, sanctified by Christ. He was crucified in weakness and now lives by the power of God. He's sitting at the Father's right hand. He's ruling his church. He's refining and disciplining us with his strong hand that's both gracious and firm. So we must have that biblical mindset to see that any problems in our lives and in our church, they're not things over which Jesus has no control or no saying. 
He's ruling the church. This is his church. He's building it. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. Whatever difficulties or issues we face now or in the future, we must cling to that promise that all that he does among us is out of love and grace. All to prepare us for that day when we'll see him face to face, when we'll be transformed to be just like him. If we desire to be a church where this free and abundant grace is flowing, then we must also be willing, when he sees fit, to come under his hand of discipline. In anticipation of that day then, we're called to reflect Jesus in how we operate now. To know his grace in our weakness and seek to show grace and mercy wherever possible. Always, always seeking to see that mercy triumphs over judgment. But also knowing that the power of God is at work in us, in our weakness. It's the power of Christ that is perfected in weakness. That power of God enables us then to stand firm on the things that matter. The truth of the gospel, the call to be holy as he is holy, the the call to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And above all, lifting up and honouring the name of Jesus so that as a church, not just as individuals, but as a church, we might be for the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray.